Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. How can Whimsy escape the sucking mud pits of Peter's pot? Dorothy Sayers, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The vintage episode for the week is The Blue Cross by G.K. Chesterton. Be sure to check out this Father Brown mystery on Tuesday. If you enjoy the show, please become a monthly supporter and help us keep the lights on. Please go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporter for as little as $5 a month. As a thank you gesture, we'll send you a coupon code every month for $8 off any audiobook order. Give more and you get more. It's a great way to help us keep the show going. Go to ClassicTalesAudiobooks.com and become a supporter today. We have a couple of exciting new developments. The first is the Classic Tales Book Club. We're going to be having our first meeting in March. This will be a monthly meeting where we can all get together and talk about the podcast or anything else that comes up. I'll be joined by classic tales and classic literature enthusiast Christopher Ouellette. Keep an eye on our social media channels for more information. You may have noticed that I haven't been able to record the longer audiobooks like I used to. It's just hard to justify reserving that time in my schedule, taking it away from recording something I could get paid for. But there are so many amazing books I still want to do. Well, I think I may have found a way around that. I've been wanting to record Bleak House by Charles Dickens for some time now. It's got his outlandish and deep characters, amazing plot twists, and his beautiful prose tying it all together. So I'm going to do a Kickstarter project for it. This way, I can justify reserving time in my schedule to record and produce this audiobook. And for you... I'm planning to have tons of bonus material and specials to make this happen. So get ready for a lot of fun and some amazing deals in the near future. And now, Clouds of Witness, Part 7 of 10, by Dorothy Sayers. Chapter 12, The Alibi when actually in the embrace of a voracious and powerful wild animal, the desirability of leaving a limb is not a matter to be subjected to lengthy consideration. The Wallet of Kai Lung I tripped right into it, said Whimsy's voice steadily out of the blackness. One sinks very fast. You'd better not come near, or you'll go too. We'll yell a bit. I don't think we can be very far from Grider's Hole. If your lordship will keep shouting, returned Mr. Bunter, I think I can get to you, he panted, untying with his teeth the hard knot of a coil of string. Oi! cried Lord Peter obediently. Help! Oi! Oi! 
Mr. Bunter groped towards the voice, feeling cautiously before him with his walking stick. We should keep away, Bunter, said Lord Peter peevishly. Where's the sense of both of us? He squelched and floundered again. Don't do that, my lord, cried the man entreatingly. You'll sink farther in. I'm up to my thighs now, said Lord Peter. I'm coming, said Bunter. Go on shouting. Ah, here's where it gets soggy. He felt the ground carefully, selected a tussocky bit which seemed reasonably firm, and drove his stick well into it. Oi! Hi! Help! said Lord Peter, shouting lustily. Mr. Bunter tied one end of the string to the walking stick, belted his Burberry tightly about him, and, laying himself cautiously down upon his belly, advanced, clue in hand, like a very gothic Theseus of a late and degenerate school. The bog heaved horribly as he crawled over it, and slimy water squelched up into his face. He felt with his hands for tussocks of grass, and got support from them when he could. "'Call out again, my lord! Here!' The voice was fainter and came from the right. Bunter had lost his line a little, hunting for tussocks. "'I daren't come faster,' he explained. He felt as though he had been crawling for years. "'Get out while there's time,' said Peter. "'I'm up to my waist. Lord, this is a rather beastly way to peg out.' "'You won't peg out,' cried Bunter. His voice was suddenly quite close. "'Your hands now.' For a few agonizing minutes, two pairs of hands groped over the invisible slime. Then, keep yours still, said Bunter. He made a slow circling movement. It was hard work keeping his face out of the mud. His hands slithered over the slobbery surface, and suddenly closed on an arm. Thank God, said Bunter. Hang on here, my lord. He felt forward. The arms were perilously close to the sucking mud. The hands crawled clingingly up his arms and rested on his shoulders. He grasped whimsy beneath the armpits and heaved. The exertion drove his own knees deep into the bog. He straightened himself hurriedly. Without using his knees he could get no purchase, but to use them meant certain death. They could only hang on desperately till help came, or till the strain became too great. He could not even shout. It was almost more than he could do to keep his mouth free of water. The dragging strain on his shoulders was intolerable. The mere effort to breathe meant an agonizing crick in the neck. "'You must go on shouting, my lord,' Whimsy shouted. His voice was breaking and fading. "'Punter, old thing,' said Lord Peter, "'I'm simply beastly sorry to have let you in for this.' "'Don't mention it, my lord,' said Bunter, with his mouth in the slime. A thought struck him. "'What became of your stick, my lord?' I dropped it. It should be somewhere near if it hasn't sunk in. Bunter cautiously released his left hand and felt about. Hi! Hi! Help! Bunter's hand closed over the stick, which by a happy accident had fallen across a stable tuft of grass. He pulled it over to him and laid it across his arms so that he could just rest his chin upon it. The relief to his neck was momentarily so enormous that his courage was renewed. He felt he could hang on forever. Help! Minutes passed like hours. See that? A faint, flickering gleam somewhere away to the right. With desperate energy, both shouted together, Help! Help! Oi! Oi! Help! An answering yell. The light swayed, 
came nearer, a spreading blur in the fog. We must keep it up, panted Whimsy. They yelled again. Where be? Here! Hello! A pause. Then, Here be, Stick, said a voice, suddenly near. Follow the string, yelled Bunter. They heard two voices, apparently arguing. Then the string was twitched. Here, here, two of us, make haste. More consultation. Hang on, can't they? Yes, if you're quick. Veteran hurdle. Two on, he says, eh? Yes. Deep in? One of us. All right. Jem's coming. A splattering noise marked the arrival of Jem with a hurdle. Then came an endless wait. Then another hurdle, the string twitching, and the blur of the lantern bobbing violently about. Then a third hurdle was flung down, and the light came suddenly out of the mist. A hand caught Bunter by the ankle. Where's other? Here, nearly up to his neck. Have you a rope? Aye, sure. Jem, rope. The rope came snaking out of the fog. Bunter grasped it and passed it round his master's body. Now, come thou back and heave. Bunter crawled cautiously backwards upon the hurdle. All three set hands upon the rope. It was like trying to heave the earth out of her course. Afraid I'm rooted to Australia, panted Peter apologetically. Bunter sweated and sobbed. It's all right. He's coming. With slow heavings, the rope began to come towards them. Their muscles cracked. Then with a great plop, the bog let go its hold. The three at the rope were hurled head over heels upon the hurdles. Something unrecognisable in slime lay flat, heaving helplessly. They dragged at him in a kind of frenzy, as though he might be snatched back from them again. The evil bog stench rose thickly round them. They crossed the first hurdle, the second, the third, and rose staggeringly to their feet on firm ground. What a beastly place, said Lord Peter, faintly. Apologise. Stupid of me to have forgotten. What's the name? Ah, that's lucky, said one of their rescuers. We thought we heard someone shouting. There be few folks as comes out of Peter's pot dead or alive, I reckon. Well... It was nearly potted Peter that time, said his lordship, and fainted. To Lord Peter, the memory of his entry that night into the farmhouse at Grider's Hole always brought with it a sensation of nightmare. The coils of fog rolled in with them as the door opened, and through them the firelight leapt steamily. A hanging lamp made a blur. The Medusa head of Mrs. Grimethorpe, terribly white against her black hair, peered over him. A hairy paw caught her by the shoulder and wrenched her aside. Shameless! A man? Any man? That's what that thing's on. By thee till us wanted. What's this? Voices. Voices, ever so many fierce faces peering down all around. Peter's pot. And what were he wanting on the moor this time of night? No good. Nobody but a fool or a thief would come up here in the fog. One of the men, a farm labourer with wry shoulders and a thin, malicious face, suddenly burst into tuneless song. I've been a courtin' Mary Jane on Iclamour bar that. Hold tongue! yelled Grimthorpe in a fury. Does thou want I should break every bone in that body? he turned on Bunter. Take the Ethan off, I tell thee. That here for no good. But William, began his wife, 
He snapped round at her like a dog, and she shrank back. Nay, no, nay, no, said a man, whom Whimsy dimly recognised as the fellow who had befriended him on his previous visit. I must take them in for the night, I reckon, or there'll be trouble with the folk down yonder at the lodge. That alone what police'll say. If the fellow won't come to do harm, he's done it already, to himself. Won't do any more tonight. Look at him. Bring him to the fire, man, he added to Bunter. And then turning to the farmer again, This I'll be in Queer Street, if we're a-going dying us with no money, or rheumatics. This reasoning seemed partly to convince Grimethorpe. He made way, grumbling, and the two chilled and exhausted men were brought near the fire. Somebody brought two large, steaming tumblers of spirits. Whimsy's brain seemed to clear, then swim again drowsily, drunkenly. Presently he became aware that he was being carried upstairs and put to bed. A big old-fashioned room with a fire on the hearth and a huge grim four-poster. Bunter was helping him out of soaked clothes, rubbing him. Another man appeared from time to time to help him. From below came the bellowing sound of Grimethorpe's voice, blasphemously uplifted. Then the harsh, brassy singing of the wry-shouldered man. Then worms will come and eat thee up, on Iclamore Bartat. And ducks'll come and eat up worms, on Iclamore. Lord Peter rolled into bed. Bunter, where? You all right? Never said thank you. To know what I'm doing. Anywhere to sleep. What? He drifted away into oblivion. The old song came up mockingly and wound its horrible fancies into his dreams. Then we shall come and eat up ducks, on Iclamore, Bartat, and that is how, and that is how, is how. When Whimsy next opened his eyes, a pale November sun was struggling in at the window. It seemed that the fog had fulfilled its mission and departed. For some time he lay, vaguely unaware of how he came to be where he was. Then the outlines of recollection straightened themselves. The drifting outposts of dreams were called back. The burden of his preoccupation settled down as usual. He became aware of an extreme bodily lassitude, and of the dragging pain of wrenched shoulder muscles. Examining himself perfunctorily, he found a bruised and tender zone beneath the armpits and round his chest and back where the rescuing rope had hauled him. It was painful to move, so he lay back and closed his eyes once more. Presently the door opened to admit Bunter, neatly clothed, and bearing a tray from which rose a most excellent odour of ham and eggs. Hello, Bunter. Good morning, my lord. I trust your lordship has rested. Feel fit as a fiddle, thanks. Come to think of it, why fiddle? except for a general feeling of having been violently massaged by some fellow with cast-iron fingers and knobbly joints. How about you? The arms are a trifle fatigued, thank you, my lord. Otherwise, I am happy to say I feel no trace of the misadventure. Allow me, my lord. He set the tray tenderly upon Lord Peter's ready knees. They must be jolly well dragged out of their sockets, said his lordship, holding me up all that ghastly long time. I'm so beastly deep in debt to you already, Bunter. It's not a bit of use trying to repay it. You know I won't forget anyhow, don't you? All right. I won't be embarrassing or anything. Thanks awfully, anyhow. That's that. What? Do they give you anywhere decent to sleep? 
I didn't seem to be able to sit up and take notice last night. I slept excellently, I thank your lordship. Mr. Bunder indicated a kind of truckle bed in a corner of the room. They would have given me another room, my lord, but in the circumstances I preferred to remain with your lordship, trusting you would excuse the liberty. I told them that I feared the effects of prolonged immersion upon your lordship's health. I was uneasy besides about the intention of Grimethorpe. I feared he might not feel altogether hospitably disposed, that he might be led into some hasty action if we were not together. I shouldn't wonder. Most murderous-looking fellow I ever set eyes on. I'll have to talk to him this morning, or to Mrs. Grimethorpe. I'll take my oath she could tell us something, what? I should say there was very little doubt of it, my lord. Trouble is, pursued Whimsy, with his mouth full of egg, I don't know how to get at her. That jolly husband of hers seems to cherish the most unpleasant suspicions of anything that comes this way of trousers. If he found out we'd been talking to her, what you may call privately, he might, as you say, be hurried by his feelings into doing something regrettable. Just so, my lord. Still, the fellow must go and look after his bally old farm some time, and then perhaps we'll be able to tackle her. Queer sort of woman. Damn fine one, what? Wonder what she made of Cathcart, he added musingly. Mr. Bunter volunteered no opinion on this delicate point. Well, Bunter, I think I'll get up. I don't suppose we're altogether welcome here. I didn't fancy the look in our host's eye last night. No, my lord. He made a deal of opposition about having your lordship conveyed to this room. Why, whose room is it? His own and Mrs. Grimthorpe's, my lord. It appeared most suitable, there being a fireplace and the bed already made up. Mrs. Grimthorpe showed great kindness, my lord, and the man Jake pointed out to Grimthorpe that it would doubtless be to his pecuniary advantage to treat your lordship with consideration. Hmm, nice grasping character, ain't he? Well, it's up and away for me. Oh, Lord, I am stiff. I say, Bunter, have I any clothes to put on? I have dried and brushed your lordship's suit to the best of my ability, my lord. It is not as I should wish to see it, but I think your lordship will be able to wear it to Riddlesdale. Well, I don't suppose the streets will be precisely crowded, retorted his lordship. I do so want a hot bath. How about shaving water? I can procure that from the kitchen, my lord. Bunter padded away, and Lord Peter, having pulled on a shirt and trousers with many grunts and groans, roamed over to the window. As usual with hardy country dwellers, it was tightly shut, and a thick wedge of paper had been rammed in to keep the sash from rattling. He removed this and flung up the sash. The wind rollicked in, laden with peaty moor scents. He drank it in gladly. It was good to see the jolly old sun, after all, he would have hated to die a sticky death in Peter's pot. For a few minutes he stood there, returning thanks vaguely in his mind for the benefits of existence. Then he withdrew to finish dressing. The wad of paper was still in his hand, and he was about to fling it into the fire when a word caught his eye. He unrolled the paper. As he read it, his eyebrows went up and his mouth pursed itself into an indescribable expression of whimsical enlightenment. Bunter, returning with the hot water, found his master transfixed, the paper in one hand and his socks in the other, and whistling a complicated passage of Bach under his breath. Bunter, 
said his lordship. I am, without exception, the biggest ass in Christendom. When a thing is close under my nose, I can't see it. I get a telescope and look for the explanation in Stapley. I deserve to be crucified upside down as a cure for anemia of the brain. Jerry! Jerry! But naturally, of course, you rotten ass, isn't it obvious? Silly old blighter. Why couldn't he tell Murbles or me? Mr. Bunter advanced, the picture of respectful inquiry. Look at it! Look at it! said Whimsy, with a hysterical squeak of laughter. Oh, Lord! Oh, Lord! Stuck into the window frame for anybody to find! Just like Jerry! Signs his name to the business in letters a foot long, leaves it conspicuously about, and then goes away and is chivalrously silent. Mr. Bunter put the jug down upon the washstand in case of accident, and took the paper. It was the missing letter from Tommy Freeborn. No doubt about it. There it was, the evidence which established the truth of Denver's evidence, more, which established his alibi for the night of the 13th. Not Cathcart, Denver. Denver, suggesting that the shooting party should return in October to Riddlesdale, where they had opened the grouse season in August. Denver, sneaking hurriedly out at 11.30 to walk two miles across the fields on a night when Farmer Grimethorpe had gone to buy machinery. Denver, carelessly plugging a rattling sash on a stormy night with an important letter bearing his title on it for all to see. Denver, padding back at three in the morning like a homing tomcat to fall over his guest's dead body by the conservatory. Denver, with his kind, stupid, English gentleman ideas about honour, going obstinately off to prison, rather than tell his solicitor where he had been. Denver misleading them all into the wildest and most ingenious solutions of a mystery which now stood out clear as seven sunbeams. Denver, whose voice the woman had thought she recognised on the memorable day when she flung herself into the arms of his brother. Denver calmly setting in motion the enormous creaking machinery of a trial by his noble peers in order to safeguard a woman's reputation. This very day, probably, a select committee of lords was sitting to inspect the journals of this house upon former trials of peers in criminal cases in order to bring the Duke of Denver to a speedy trial and to report to the house what they should think proper thereupon. There they were, moving that an address be presented to His Majesty by the lords with white staves to acquaint His Majesty of the date proposed for the trial, arranging for fitting up the Royal Gallery at Westminster, humbly requesting the attendance of a sufficient police force to keep clear the approaches leading to the house, petitioning His Majesty graciously to appoint a Lord High Steward, ordering, in sheep-like accordance with precedent, that all lords be summoned to attend in their robes, that every lord, in giving judgment, disclose his opinion upon his honour, laying his right hand upon his heart, that the sergeant-at-arms be within the house, to make proclamations in the king's name for keeping silence, and so on and so on unendingly. And there, jammed in the window-sash, was the dirty little bit of paper which, discovered earlier, would have made the whole monstrous ceremonial unnecessary. Whimsy's adventure in the bog had unsettled his nerves. He sat down on the bed and laughed, with the tears streaming down his face. Mr. Bunter was speechless. Speechlessly, he produced a razor, 
and to the end of his days Whimsy never knew how or from whom he had so adequately procured it, and began to strop it thoughtfully upon the palm of his hand. Presently, Whimsy pulled himself together, and staggered to the window for a little cooling draught of more air. As he did so, a loud hullabaloo smote his ear, and he perceived in the courtyard below Farmer Grimethorpe striding among his dogs. When they howled, he struck at them with a whip, and they howled again. Suddenly he glanced up at the window, with an expression of such livid hatred that Whimsy stepped hurriedly back as though struck. While Bunter shaved him, he was silent. The interview before Lord Peter was a delicate one. The situation, however one looked at it, unpleasant. He was under a considerable debt of gratitude to his hostess. On the other hand, Denver's position was such that minor considerations really had to go to the wall. His lordship had, nevertheless, never felt quite such a cad as he did while descending the staircase at Grider's Hole. In the big farm kitchen he found a stout countrywoman stirring a pot of stew. He asked for Mr. Grimethorpe, and was told that he had gone out. "'Can I speak to Mrs. Grimethorpe, please?' The woman looked doubtfully at him, wiped her hands on her apron, and going into the scullery, shouted, "'Mrs. Grimethorpe!' The voice replied from somewhere outside. "'Gentlemen, what's either?' "'Where is Mrs. Grimethorpe?' broke in Peter hurriedly. "'Here, yeah, Derry reckon. "'I'll go to her there.' said Whimsy, stepping briskly out. He passed through a stone-paved scullery and across a yard, in time to see Mrs. Grimthorpe emerging from a dark doorway opposite. Framed there, the cold sunlight just lighting upon her still, dead-white face and heavy dark hair, she was more wonderful than ever. There was no trace of Yorkshire descent in the long dark eyes and curled mouth. The curve of nose and cheekbones vouched for an origin immensely remote. Coming out of the darkness, she might have just risen from her far tomb in the pyramids, dropping the dry and perfumed grave bands from her fingers. Lord Peter pulled himself together. Foreign, he said to himself matter-of-factly. Touch of Jew, perhaps, or Spanish, is it? Remarkable type. Don't blame Jerry. Couldn't live with Helen myself. Now for it. He advanced quickly. "'Good morning,' she said. "'Are you better?' "'Perfectly all right, thank you. Thanks for your kindness, which I do not know how to repay.' "'You will repay any kindness best by going at once,' she answered in her remote voice. "'My husband does not care for strangers, and was unfortunate the way you met before. I will go directly, but I must first beg for the favour of a word with you.' He peered past her into the dimness of the dairy. "'In here, perhaps. What do you want with me?' She stepped back, however, and allowed him to follow her in. "'Mrs. Grimethorpe, I am placed in a most painful position. You know that my brother, the Duke of Denver, is in prison, awaiting his trial for a murder which took place on the night of October 13th?' Her face did not change. "'I have heard so.' "'He has, in the most decided manner, refused to state where he was,' between eleven and three on that night. His refusal has brought him into great danger of his life. She looked at him steadily. He feels bound in honour not to disclose his whereabouts, though I know that if he chose to speak, he could bring a witness to clear him. He seems to be 
a very honourable man. The cold voice wavered a trifle, then steadied again. Yes, undoubtedly, from his point of view, he is doing the right thing. You will understand, however, that as his brother, I am naturally anxious to have the matter put in its proper light. I don't understand why you are telling me all this. I suppose if the thing is disgraceful, he doesn't want it known. Obviously, but to us, to his wife and young son, and to his sister and myself, his life and safety are matters of the first importance. Of more importance than his honour? The secret is a disgraceful one, in a sense, and will give pain to his family. But it would be an infinitely greater disgrace that he should be executed for murder. The stigma in that case would involve all those who bear his name. The shame of the truth will, I fear, in this very unjust society of ours, rest more upon the witness to his alibi than upon himself. Can you in that case expect the witness to come forward? To prevent the condemnation of an innocent man? Yes, I think I may venture to expect even that. I repeat, why are you telling me all this? Because, Mrs. Grimethorpe, you know, even better than I, how innocent my brother is of this murder. Believe me, I am deeply distressed at having to say these things to you. I know nothing about your brother. Forgive me, that is not true. I know nothing, and surely if the Duke will not speak, you should respect his reasons. I am not bound in any way. I am afraid I cannot help you. You are wasting time. If you cannot produce your missing witness, why do you not set about finding the real murderer? If you do so, you surely need not trouble about this alibi. Your brother's movements are his own business. I could wish, said Whimsy, you had not taken up this attitude. Believe me, I would have done all I could to spare you. I have been working hard to find, as you say, the real murderer, but with no success. The trial will probably take place at the end of the month. Her lips twitched a little at that, but she said nothing. I had hoped that with your help we might agree on some explanation, less than the truth, perhaps, but sufficient to clear my brother. As it is, I fear I shall have to produce the proof I hold and let matters take their course. That, at last, struck under her guard. A dull flush crept up her cheeks. One hand tightened upon the handle of the churn where she had rested it. What do you mean by proof? I can prove that on the night of the thirteenth my brother slept in the room I occupied last night, said Whimsy, with calculated brutality. She winced. It is a lie. You cannot prove it. He will deny it. I shall deny it. He was not there? No. Then how did this come to be wedged in the sash of the bedroom window? At sight of the letter she broke down, crumpling up in a heap against the table. The set lines of her face distorted themselves into a mere caricature of terror. No, no, no! It is a lie! God help me! Hush! said Whimsy peremptorily. Someone will hear you. He dragged her to her feet. Tell the truth, and we will see if we can find a way out. It is true. He was here that night. You know it. When did he come? At a quarter past twelve. Who let him in? He had the keys. When did he leave you? A little after two. Yes, that fits in all right. Three quarters of an hour to go, 
and three quarters to come back. He stuck this into the window, I suppose, to keep it from rattling. There was a high wind. I was nervous. I thought every sound was my husband coming back. Where was your husband? At Stapley. Had he suspected this? Yes, for some time. Since my brother was here in August? Yes, but he could get no proof. If he had had proof, he would have killed me. You've seen him. He is a devil. Hmm. Whimsy was silent. The woman glanced fearfully at his face and seemed to read some hope there, for she clutched him by the arm. If you call me to give evidence, she said, he will know. He will kill me. For God's sake, have pity. That letter is my death warrant. Oh, for the mother that bore you, have mercy on me. My life is a hell, and when I die, I shall go to hell for my sin. Please, find some other way you can. You must. Whimsy gently released himself. Don't do that, Mrs. Grimethorpe. You might be seen. I am deeply sorry for you, and if I can get my brother out of this without bringing you in, I promise you I will. But you see the difficulty. Why don't you leave this man? He is openly brutal to you. She laughed. Do you think he'd leave me alive while the law was slowly releasing me? Knowing him, do you think so? Whimsy really did not think so. I will promise you this, Mrs. Gramthorpe. I will do all I can to avoid having to use your evidence. But, if there should be no other way, I will see that you have police protection from the moment that the subpoena is served on you. And for the rest of my life, when you are once in London, we will see about freeing you from this man. No. If you call upon me, I am a lost woman. But you will find another way? I will try, but I can promise nothing. I will do everything that is possible to protect you. If you care at all for my brother... I don't know. I am so horribly afraid. He was kind and good to me. He was so different. But I am afraid. I am afraid. Whimsy turned. Her terrified eyes had seen the shadow cross the threshold. Grimethorpe was at the door, glowering in upon them. Ah, Mr. Grimethorpe, exclaimed Whimsy cheerfully. There you are. Awfully pleased to see you, and thank you, don't you know, for putting me up. I was just saying so to Mrs. Grimethorpe and asking her to say good-bye to you for me. Must be off now, I'm afraid. Butter and I are ever so grateful to you both for all your kindness. Oh, and I say, could you find me the stout fellows who hauled us out of that pot of yours last night, if it is yours? Nasty damp thing to keep outside the front door, what? I'd like to thank him. Damn good thing for unwelcome guests said the man ferociously. And that better be off before I throws thee out. I'm just off, said Peter. Goodbye again, Mrs. Grimethorpe, and a thousand thanks. He collected Bunter, rewarded his rescuer suitably, took an affectionate farewell of the enraged farmer, and departed, sore body and desperately confused in mind. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Clouds of Witness, Part 7 of 9, by Dorothy Sayers. If you've enjoyed this episode, please become a supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off 
any audiobook order. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me next time, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>